Open with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And we'll be looking today at the second commandment. Um, it's a, uh, an interesting study through this. Um, as we go through it, I'm just humbled and amazed and convicted and everything else you can be as you think about this God who made himself known to us in his word. Um, as I'm going through this, I um, uh, wanted to point you to a couple of books, actually a couple of books that I am looking at right now. As I go through this, they're really small books, and I have a technical commentary. I didn't think you would carry anything for it. Uh, so, but these are two wonderful books. Uh, Kevin DeYoung, The Ten Commandments, uh, and then uh, J.I. Packer, Keeping the Ten Commandments. This one right here is nothing more than a devotional on the Ten Commandments, but I want you to know something. This guy says more in two sentences than I say in two months, okay? So um, they, they're both wonderful books. I'm um, being encouraged by them and informed by them, and uh, as well as the uh, Exodus commentary that has an awful lot on Exodus chapter 20. Um, so I, I want us to look at this, and I've entitled this, God-Directed Worship. It's interesting that I'd call the second commandment that, but that's really what the second commandment is doing. It's directing us and helping us to narrow our worship of the living God. Uh, I, I want us to see that the first commandment uh, says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. First commandment. That first commandment uh, warns us against worshiping the wrong God. Okay? He's telling us not to worship the wrong God, uh, such as Baal in that day, or Allah, or uh, Buddha, or any other so-called gods. Uh, self. Might as well throw it out there, right? That's the God that most people worship, itself. So the first commandment warns us of worshiping the wrong God. The second commandment warns us of worshiping God in the wrong way. It's possible to worship God in the wrong way. We're going to look at that uh, today, and we're going to look at it in three different things, three different ways. First of all, we're to avoid uh, self-prescribed worship. We're to avoid self-prescribed worship. 
There's a lot of that going on. I'm not going to get into all of it, but there's a lot of that that goes on in our churches today uh, where pastors, worship leaders, uh, go with the, uh, the, the stream of culture and bring it into worship of God. Doesn't belong. There uh, are, are some things that just do not belong. So uh, we're to avoid self-prescribed worship. Secondly, just straight out, do not image God. Do not image God. Let me use another word. Do not imagine God in your mind. We're going to look at that a little closer. But we image God. We're to avoid imaging God or imagining Him as He is not. Thirdly, we're going to look at worship as God has prescribed. If you want to know how should we worship God, the Bible tells us how we should worship God. We don't look to culture to find out how we worship God. We don't look to other religions to find out how we worship God. We look to Scripture and so I, I want us to see those three things today. So first, avoid self-prescribed worship. It says here in verse 4, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm going to stop right there. I want us to see that the prohibition going on here is infusing an object with spiritual capacity that could bring us closer to God, represent God or establish fellowship with God. Uh, let, let's think about that for a moment. You know, one of the things that existed in the church for a long time and in some uh, uh, varieties of the church still exist are icons. You know what an icon is? An icon could be something like the Shroud of Turin, or uh, a piece of wood that is said to have come from the cross, or the bones of martyrs. These things were icons. Uh, that's a, a, a Greek word, by the way, icon, that means image. And so I, I, I want us to see that, that in church history, what people would do is they would take these icons and they would uh, look to them 
as something holy and representative of God. No, you cannot do that. So they would give them spiritual ability. The thought was to bring them closer to God or that actually represents God. Israel uh, did exactly that, we find, in uh, Exodus chapter 32, uh, where the people said, we don't know what happened to this Moses guy, but he hadn't come down yet. I mean, God was giving him all the stuff, right? And so what did they do? They, they uh, got Aaron, and they had Aaron uh, build a calf. Of course, Aaron said, man, they gave me all this stuff, threw it in the fire, this calf jumped out. You know. But I want you to see, I mean, he intentionally did that, and he even said, behold, the gods, O Israel, who led you out of Egypt. That calf represented the God who had called them out of Egypt, the one who's given this command, uh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And they said in Exodus chapter 32, Behold, your God. They were talking about the calf. Here's this representation of God. It wasn't merely a foreign God. It was the God who led them out of Egypt. You shall uh, not make for yourselves a carved image. Of what? Of God. So one thing that they did is they had this, this thought that here's God. We need something to represent him. Moses hadn't come back. First Samuel chapter 4, uh, Israel found themselves in a battle with the Philistines, and the Philistines uh, were whooping them. And they said, why is God letting this happen, you know? And, and so do you know what they did in 1 Samuel chapter 4? Look with me there, if you will. 1 Samuel chapter 4, uh, they were, uh, you know, being, being whipped by the Philistines, and they called for the ark of the covenant to be brought to them in battle. And it says there in verse 5, As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. I mean, they had sent for the ark to be brought there as a talisman, a good luck charm if you will. And they thought, now, here we are. We can win now. And the Philistines heard it, and they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. They said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver for us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage, 
And be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. They brought it in as nothing more than a good luck charm. A talisman. I recall ads on television. I don't see a lot of ads on television anymore. Of television charlatans. I refuse to call them television evangelists. Of television charlatans selling products like anointing oil and a little thing that you wear around your neck. For what purpose? Ward off the evil spirits? Keep disease away? Uh, They would have these cloths that they had prayed over. And if you'll send us $50, we'll send you one of these cloths. Now, that's why I say charlatans. If you'll send us $50, we'll send you this little vial of holy water. Sold as a good luck charm. You shall have no other gods before me, and you will not have a graven image. Not to have some kind of image, some kind of talisman, some kind of good luck charm to represent God. People would buy them, and they do buy them, or they wouldn't keep selling them. Many people have Christian art. This commandment, by the way, is not a prohibition to Christian art. God loves beauty. I have some personal convictions about that, but I don't put them on other people. But I want you to see that uh, those things are fine. I mean, God... It's okay with pictures. Many people have pictures of Jesus or rooms or crosses. One of the things that I have of my dad's is a little cross that he carried around in his pocket. He carried it at more or less, is a good luck charm. These things don't violate the commandment unless they are used as a means of being brought closer to God, of representing God, or establishing fellowship with God. In other words, you have a picture of Jesus, all right? And a lot of them, you know, uh, you might steer away from those that are, have blonde hair, blue eyes, Scandinavian descent. But, you know, but it's one thing to have a picture of Jesus. It's another thing to turn and face the picture of Jesus 
and pray as though doing so brings you closer to God. Or to have a room decorated and set apart because it makes you feel closer to God. You say, well, isn't that why we're here? No. We're here because the place holds all of us. It doesn't make us closer to God. I mean, what made this room awesome was that the people of God gathered in it this morning for the purpose of worshiping God. So we should be careful with things so that we don't use them uh, as a means of that it makes me closer or represents God or establishes fellowship with God. If I come to this place, my prayer is going to be heard by him more. That would not be a right way to understand this commandment. So we're to avoid self-willed worship or self-prescribed worship. You know, I, I, I want us to, to understand, I mean, we don't want to bring culture into our worship experience. There's ways in which culture is. There's a reason we leave all the lights on when we sing. The cultural phenomenon that so many churches today dim the lights, bring up some stage lights on a band. When God has told us when we gather, we're to sing to one another. Well, wait a minute, I can't even see you. Turn the lights down. The reason for us to see one another. We're commanded in Scripture to sing to one another. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We don't bring culture into our worship. Secondly, I want us to understand that we are not to image God. Uh, there he says, do not... You shall not make for yourself a carved image. We are not to image God. When we image God, we will degrade God with our imaging. All right? We will degrade Him with our imaging. J.I. Packer writes, God's real attack in this commandment is on mental images of which metal images are more truly the consequence than a curse. Did y'all catch that? The metal images begin as a mental image. 
our imagination. Y'all hear the word going together there? Our imagination. That's why Aaron's, what he said in his defense was nonsense. Because fire doesn't have an imagination that it would spit out a golden calf. But a man had an imagination to form it into that. Packer points out a very interesting thing. That it's our image or our imagination. Our mind is where the breaking of this commandment begins. He goes on and he says... We dare not trust anything our imagination suggests about Him, God. For the built-in habit of fallen minds is to scale God down. At every point, God is creator. God is the creator and greater than anything we can grasp. We can't do it. We can't wrap our minds around God. He's not just a being. He is being. We can't comprehend all that God is. And we certainly cannot create an image that would encapsulate all that God is. Creation declares the glory of God, but not all of the glory of God. It is not up to us to make the invisible God visible. Secondly, I want us to see that we do not image God Not only because we will degrade God with our imaging, but God's glory cannot be duplicated. Uh, Any attempt to capture God with man-made representation brings God to jealousy. That's what it says here. Where I'm a jealous God. He goes on, he says, "Don't, Don't make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above. Or that is in the earth beneath. Or that is in the water under the earth. God's glory can't be duplicated. He's created all these things. And creation declares the glory of God. But the things that God has created are not God. And they do not completely and properly image God. So we're not to carve a fish and worship it. Saying, this is my God. Who's your God? Well, he's Yahweh, but this is what he looks like. No. We're not to carve out a tree. Or even run up and hug one, you know, or whatever. We're not to worship And we're not to make images of things to worship that represent God. Because they don't take in all of His glory. It says there, don't do this. Why? Because I'm a jealous God. 
Don't bow down, don't serve them. I'm a jealous God. What does it mean that God is jealous? It means that He is pure. It means that He is holy. What picture would you draw? What statue could you form that could help us to understand and comprehend the purity and holiness of God? There's not one. There is not one. And so to carve out an image to represent God in any way other than the way God has represented Himself or imaged Himself is to uh, present something that is adulterous to Him. There's where the jealousy comes in. You're playing the role of an adulterer or an adulteress. And in doing that, the height of his holiness and and, and purity grow the jealousy that he has for his own holiness because you have misrepresented. That's what he's saying. Do not have a graven image. You know, other religions worship different aspects of creation. The sun, the moon, the stars. Some worship animals. Many of your eastern religions do that. The Hindus Cows, Buddha, I guess, cows and whatever, sun, moon, stars. It's kind of like these things aren't meant for your worship. They are meant to glorify me. He says he's jealous. And then he says something here that I know some of you are going, What about that next thing it says? He's jealous, so what happens? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Who are those? The ones who worship the wrong God or the ones who worship the right God in a wrong way? He says... Visiting iniquity of the fathers. Well, wait a minute. So is this saying that the children are going to suffer punishment as a result of their father's sin? No. It says he's visiting punishment on the iniquity of the fathers. In other words, the children who follow after and do the sin of their fathers. That they're carrying on the sin. That they don't stop the sin, but they carry on in the sin of their father. 
God lets his jealousy come against those who continue in the sin that their fathers showed them. My father wasn't a super Christian, but there's one thing that my father did in our family. He brought to a halt the, uh, the, the alcohol in our family. My grandfather, his father, were alcoholics, raging alcoholics. What my dad did, he said, I'm not going to do what my father did. I'm not going to carry on in what my father did. Changed my life. Changed my life. Because I'd have gone down that road in a heartbeat. I want you to know that what we see here is God saying, you know, it's not the children who turn away from the iniquity of the fathers that I punish. I show steadfast love to the thousands who turn away from the sin of their fathers and worship me rightly and only. God's glory cannot be duplicated. His holiness cannot be put in a frame. You cannot contain it. All the universe cannot. Do not image God. One reason is because God images himself. He says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You know, one thing that God has done is he's provided prophets and priests and kings throughout the history of Israel so that he could communicate to them his prescription for worship, and for knowing Him to draw them near. Rather than build an image, the people were to listen to the messengers that God sent. Remember last week I spoke of God coming down on Sinai and said, you shall have no other gods before me. And then in the New Testament we find Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And God says, this is my son. Listen to him. Moses, the recipient of those commandments and passing them on to the people, said, God's going to raise up one like me. Listen to him. God provides messengers for his word and provides his word. He images himself. He created his own image. Look with me at Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27. So God created man 
in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We have been created in the image of God. And we are meant to show what God is like. That's a big responsibility, don't you think? That's a tall order for any of us. Kevin DeYoung writes, Idolatry diminishes God and us. Somebody asked Jesus one time, what's the greatest commandment? He gave him two answers. He said, the first answer is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second greatest is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The second greatest commandment carries this forward. Love your neighbor as yourself. Mistreating others and worshiping idols is violating the divine image that we are. We're not to mistreat others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Giving you a few reasons why we should not image God. Now I want to just turn it for a moment and speak a little bit about from all this, what worship has God prescribed for us? The first thing I want to talk about is something that you don't find necessarily here, but it's reflected here. There's something that you may not have heard of, being Baptists. Uh, it's called the regulative principle. Perhaps you have heard of it. It speaks of worship. The regulative principle uh, states this. Uh, it says uh, that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed Will. Now, there's a few things we need to understand about the regulative principle. Just like anything else that man comes up with, some people run to an extreme with a principle in one direction, and some people run to an extreme in a completely other direction. But the regulative principle basically is telling us that we learn how God wants us to worship Him. By what God has said, how should we worship Him? Not by what people want. Corporate worship should follow elements that flow from the Bible. There are some people who take the regulative principle and run way over here, and they say, well, you know what? The New Testament doesn't say that they used instruments in Scripture, so guess what? We're not going to use instruments. It's all going to be just voices. That's overusing 
the regulative principle. Whereas some people and some churches, some denominations say, well, you know what? What's important is that we get people here so that they can hear the gospel. So, let's have no regulation on how we do this. And let's just turn it loose, man. Let's rock it out. You've been to those places? So, there's a sense in which the regulative principle goes one way or the other, like this, all right? People go to the extreme. One, I'm not going to pay any attention to the regulated principle. And two, I'm going to take it way beyond. So, what does the Bible say? Rather than uh, corporate worship should follow elements that flow from the Bible rather than culture or man-made ideas. Uh, I was in a church one time, a man that was a skit every week. So much so that at one point, the question began, came to be, not what is God going to speak to us today, but I wonder what they're going to do today. And they were talking about the dog and pony show, the tricks, the skits, the different things. That became the center of worship rather than the living God. So I, I want us to think about this. God has prescribed words as the center of worship. Words as the center of worship. I know some of you are going, you're just saying that because you're a preacher. You're just saying that because you want to preach longer sermons. You know? Is it possible for me to preach longer sermons? Yes, it is, I assure you. But I won't. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses is bringing up this thing that took place on Sinai. Deuteronomy chapter 4. If you look with me there, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12. Let's look at verse 11 and then 12. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform. That is the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. He said, you heard the words, but you saw no form. It's words is how God intends us to worship. Words from songs, words uh, from 
preaching, words from testimony, it's words. It's what we do. And not only what we say. We live out the words that are preached. In other words, we must give people what they need. The proclamation of the word of God. Rather than give to people what they want. Entertainment. All that we do as a corporate body when we worship is to glorify God. It is to proclaim Him as He has commanded us to. It is to make Him known. So God has prescribed words as worship. His words. Words to build up. Words to encourage. Words that we speak. And words that we sing. Words that correct. And words that rebuke. And words that train. But words are what we do. Here this morning we have prayed. We have sung. And now I'm preaching. We have done it in a variety of settings and times during the service. But words is what God has called us to use in worship. As opposed to relics, as opposed to rituals, as opposed to uh, cultural influences. He has called us to worship according to his word. Next, God has prescribed witness as worship. We are his witnesses. You know, in creating us and making us the image of God, uh, we are living statues, if you will, of Him. We are to make Him known. We are to walk and to live as God has called us to. Um, he wants us to be witnesses. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 43. I read this text earlier um, in my pastoral prayer, but I want to pick it up once again and, and show you what he's saying in this. Chapter 43 of Isaiah, beginning in verse 9. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say, it is true. What's he saying? Look at verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Who can come as a witness of that? And then verse 10, he says to Israel, You 
are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declare the Lord. I and I am God, and henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? The answer, no one. Witnesses to what? Deliverance. Witnesses to a God who is powerful to save and deliver His people from Egypt and deliver you and me from sin and death. We are to worship as witnesses. We are witnesses of a God who saves. What that means is that our worship is not to be turned back toward ourselves, but always reflected out to Him. Witnesses to the world that this God redeems and He saves and He delivers. We are to worship as witnesses to Him. The last thing I want us to see is this in Colossians chapter 1. I read it last week. I'm going to read it again. I possibly will read it in every sermon because you can't avoid it. In Colossians, really ought to start marking my text. Chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He being Jesus is the image. That word, by the way, icon. All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him. He is the image of the invisible God. Don't make an image of me. I always image myself. You are images being witnesses of me. He is the image, having all of me in Him. Jesus Christ is the image of God. To make an image, to look to an image of God, a picture, a statue, a talisman, is to degrade Jesus Christ, who is the true, complete, total image of the living God. You shall have no other gods before me. Don't worship the wrong God. You shall not make a graven image for yourself. Don't worship the right God in the wrong way. Let's pray.